Hear now the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. When I was in the fourth grade, my fourth grade science teacher, Mrs. Martin, won a statewide Teacher of the Year award. It was a really big deal. I was from Hastings, uh, not a really big town in the state of Nebraska, and so it was a a really big thing for for my teacher, even that year, to have won this particular award. Now, I knew that she was a pretty good teacher. I'd had her for a while at this point when she won the award, but I remember thinking at that age, what does it take to win that kind of an award? What kind of a a teacher must she be that I'm not aware of to, to be distinguished among all the other teachers in the state of Nebraska? Well, that very weak, the lesson she was teaching was about the anatomy of a tree. Now, I remember very little about my science education through all of K through 12. I could probably fill an entire, I don't know, half a page with what I remember from my scientific training from all of that time. I don't have a head for much of it, but I remember this lesson 30 years later. I remember us learning about the vascular system in the anatomy of a tree. Why do I remember it? I don't know. Maybe it was just because I was thinking, this must be what an educator of the year award teaches a lesson like. And so I remember learning about the xylem and the phloem. And I may be mispronouncing those, but this is how I remember it 30 years later, that the xylem takes the, uh, the, the nutrients, the water and the nutrients from the soil and, 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 and causes those to be sent up throughout the trunk and into the branches and into the leaves of the tree. And then through photosynthesis with light and carbon dioxide and those nutrients, that there's a, a chemical transformation into other nutrients that then get sent down through the phloem of the tree. That's the other part of the vascular system of a tree to feed the entire tree all the way down to its root structures. So the xylem goes up, the phloem goes down. She had us line up, and we were all acting out the parts of it. I still remember the phloem kids, where they were saying, phloem on down, phloem on down. This is what a Nebraska State Educator of the Year looks like. And I think about that this morning, because although I am no Mrs. Martin, by any stretch of the imagination in terms of science teaching, As we study this passage, I want us to think about the anatomy of a tree. Now, let me tell you why I mean that. What we are going to be studying in this passage is Jesus talking about different facets of legalism. And as he talks about these facets of legalism, I think there's maybe a temptation as we study all that Jesus says about legalism in this passage to sort of imagine that Jesus is talking about one piece and that constitutes legalism and another piece and that constitutes legalism and another piece and that constitutes legalism. We have maybe have a box 
filled with the parts of legalism. And if we dumped that box, as Jesus dumped here, all of these parts would just scatter onto the table and we could pick one up after another. But what Jesus is talking about is something that is not just disparate parts, maybe one part over here, another part over there, but of something that is very tightly integrated, that is very deeply interconnected, that is an entire system that works in coordination, where there's an organic connection where one part is vitally connected to all the other parts, and all the other parts are vitally connected to that part. Everything works together as a system. And the reason to compare this system that Jesus talks about to a tree is not because of anything that appears in this passage, but what Jesus and John the Baptist say about trees, comparing the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trees throughout the entire Gospel of John. It starts in Matthew chapter 3, where when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to John the Baptist, he says, who told you to flee the wrath to come? And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's confronting their system of doctrine, their teaching, their legalism, and he's calling it the fruit of what they bear. And then he warns them that they may be one day cut off. And the language he uses, he says that the, the axe is now laid at the roots of the tree so that any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is not just something that John the Baptist uses. An image to talk about the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees as a tree. Jesus picks up the same image in Matthew chapter 7. In his Sermon on the Mount, he warns people, he says that good fruit only comes from good trees and rotten fruit only comes from rotten trees. A good fruit does not produce, a good tree does not produce rotten fruit and a rotten tree does not produce good fruit. And once again, Jesus warns that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we are reading about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and their teaching their system of legalism as a tree. Jesus uses other metaphors, a whitewashed tomb, leaven, leavening a whole lump. But he uses a tree, and I think there's something helpful as we think about all of the parts of what Jesus talks about concerning legalism here, to think about it in that way. We'll, we'll talk about it as we go, because what we're going to see is that there's a foundation of legalism, a root structure, if you will. Uh, there's a, a basic framework approach, outlook for legalism, and that's maybe like the trunk of the tree. You see this doctrine of legalism expanding and branching out into various different ways, and finally you see the fruit that it bears, the rotten fruit that it bears. Well, we'll talk about this as we go, but our big idea as we think about the nature of legalism that Jesus talks about here, we'll expand upon this, but our big idea is this, that legalism looks for loopholes and creates counterfeit commandments. Legalism looks for loopholes and creates counterfeit commandments. So as we look through this passage, the first thing we are going to see are those counterfeit commandments that the scribes and Pharisees come to confront Jesus about. Secondly, we will see this outlook of looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. And then third, we've got to get to, down to that foundation, that root structure, the root of legalism, the root of legalism. So let's start with counterfeit commandments in verses 1 and 2, where we read, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, before we get to what they say, let's stop right there. It's very important 
to understand the geography of what's happening. Jesus has been and remains in the northern part of the land of Canaan, in a place, an area called Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, this is actually Jesus' first interaction with religious leaders from Jerusalem. If you read some of the other Gospels, he's had other interactions. He's gone down to Jerusalem for the feasts. But in the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew wants us to see is that this is the first interaction as far as Matthew is concerned and the, and the narrative of Jesus' life that Matthew is telling us, focusing on the emphases that Matthew has. This is the first encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders from Jerusalem. They have sent a delegation. Again, this is a time in the Gospel of Matthew where we are reading about the rise of Jesus, where he is attracting a lot more attention, where people are flocking to him to be healed, and where he is attracting the attention of the religious leaders to condemn him. And here we see that a delegation has been sent from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. And the subject of their investigation is perhaps not what we would expect. It's the subject of hand-washing. In verse 2, this is the question they ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, what we have seen here is that the Pharisees and scribes are talking about hand washing. If you peek ahead to the next passage in verses 10 through 20, what you see is that Jesus starts talking about foods that are eaten. Uh, he says in verse 10 and 11, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then he goes on and talks about what comes up out of the heart that actually defiles a person. Lord willing, we'll look at that passage next week. But Jesus is talking about hand washing and then the food that we eat. You see, in those days, it wasn't so much a hygienic concern. They weren't worried about germs. They weren't worried about biological agents that would disease or make you, you sick. The people in those days believed that what you put into your body had spiritual significance. That if you ate the right food, the foods that were set apart according to the law as clean, that that would be good for you. But if you ate unclean things, again, it wasn't so much bacteria or something like that that they were worried about contracting. It was a spiritual kind of a pollution. Now, that was absolutely set out in the law. Jesus is going to overturn that eventually. But that will be a change in the law, and not because he is um, putting down the law. It is because he is going to bring that particular law to its absolute fulfillment. We'll talk about that a little bit later. What is happening in this passage that we are looking at now is this issue of washing the hands is connected to this. It has to do with ceremonial cleanness. They weren't worried about bacteria. They were worried about defilements and pollution. But understand that while food laws you can find in the Old Testament, while they are contained in the Old Testament, exactly what you could and could not eat, this issue of washing the hands before you ate was never included in the law. This is not an Old Testament law. This commandment, this commandment created by human beings, was extrapolated from different passages. First, from priestly laws concerning sacrifices. When the priests went in to offer sacrifices, they had to go to the, the laver, uh, the, the sea it's sometimes called, and they had to wash their hands. Or there's one law that had to do with ritual washings after bodily discharges. But there was no law in the entire Old Testament anywhere requiring ritual hand washing before every meal. What the scribes and the Pharisees come to confront Jesus about, investigate concerning Jesus, was a tradition of the elders that Jesus is exposing 
as a counterfeit commandment. It's a counterfeit in the sense that it looks real in many ways. If I were to tell you, yes, in Leviticus, it requires you to wash your hands before every meal. How many of you would know, oh, that's not in there? How many of us know Leviticus that well? But it seems like something that's true, right? I could totally see that. There's a lot of odd things in the book of Leviticus from our perspective that praise the Lord Jesus has fulfilled in himself that we don't have to follow anymore. But you would think I could see that fitting in. And yet it was not something that God had actually commanded. Now, a few observations of what we're seeing so far as this story is developing. Three observations about legalism. The first thing is it's very important to see that taking God's law seriously is not legalism. Jesus is not saying to these people, why are you so concerned about the law? It's not a big deal. Forget about it. Relax. Go easy. How big of a deal could it be? Jesus was not saying that. Jesus is absolutely contending for the law of God, as we are going to see in the next section. Jesus took God's law seriously right from the beginning of his public ministry. In Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Promising that it would not pass away until every jot, every tittle, every iota, every comma, every dot had been fulfilled. Jesus takes God's law seriously. That's not the problem here. In fact, Jesus, even when he deals with these food laws, as we'll look at next week, he did come to declare all foods clean. However, not by simply setting apart the law. Well, that was a silly idea. He came to fulfill that law to its uttermost to show how that law had been pointing forward to him. And now that he was here, that law had been fulfilled in him and could be accomplished and set aside. Jesus came to fulfill the law. However, during his entire lifetime, he was under the law. He never ate what was unclean. Yes, he would change the ceremonial law, but only after he had fulfilled it to the uttermost. So taking God's law seriously is not legalism. That's very important. The second thing we are seeing here is that legalism creates counterfeit commandments. Counterfeit commandments that seem legitimate, that seem to sort of fit in with godliness, but they are things that are not actually commanded. Now, when we think of legalism, I think that's what we often go to. Legalism is creating these commandments, going beyond God's Word, and that's true. But if we only think that, that we will miss the entire picture, the whole structure, the whole system of legalism that Jesus is exposing in this passage. To create counterfeit commandments is really the fruit. It is the final end point. It is the product of legalism. But there's an entire system underneath this that is supporting this and leading to this. And we're going to have to work our way backwards from the fruit of legalism, these counterfeit commandments, to see where that root goes down to. The third observation to see about legalism so far is to recognize that when we talk about counterfeit commandments, it's important to remember that counterfeiting has a very negative effect. Now, you, you wonder, why would someone counterfeit, let's say, something else like money? Well, it seems pretty obvious, right? I want money. I don't want to work for money. I don't want to steal money. That's dangerous. I'll print my own. It seems like a win-win-win. I just create my money. I have more money. Great. Except that when you add counterfeit money to an economy, 
there's very terrible effects. What you were doing is diluting the, val the value of every other dollar, of every real dollar that's out in the market. In fact, if, if you read a history of counterfeiting, and there's a short article by Richard Finlay and Annie Francis called A Brief History of Currency Counterfeiting, one of the things they point out is that counterfeit money is often used as a weapon of warfare. So, for example, uh, when the British were fighting the Americans in the Revolutionary War, one of the things that the British did was to flood the economy with counterfeit American money. Why? It wasn't because the British officers were trying to retire large in the, in the colonies. It was because by flooding other currency into the market, they were devaluing and destabilizing the burgeoning American economy. The same thing is somewhat true in spiritual warfare. When Satan can flood the church with counterfeit commands, he destabilizes and devalues the pursuit of true holiness. Counterfeit commands aren't extra credit in God's economy. They destabilize and devalue everything that God actually wants to see from his people. The fruit of these branches are not just an alternative or an extra. They're poisonous, rotten fruit that makes us all sick so that we cannot enjoy the good fruit that God has promised to us and the holiness held out to us through the gospel. Well, so far we have the fruit of this tree, counterfeit commandments. We're still not toward the root. What is the root? How do we get down to the root of, the counter, uh, of legalism? Well, in the next section, we're going to get closer to answering that question. We're still not going to quite get there. In the next section, the critical issue that we need to recognize is that legalism actually, contrary to maybe what you might think, legalism does not begin with a desire to multiply commands. If you ask someone, what is a legalist? It's someone who wants to add a lot of commands on top of God's law. God's law is very simple. Someone who wants to add a lot of commands, that's a legalist. Now, that's true in part, but that actually misses the fundamental primary motivation for legalism. So now we have to look at this second section of looking for loopholes in verses 3 through 6. Jesus answers the question with a question of his own. We read verse 3, he answered them. He says, and why? Now that's a little bit difficult to see. I mean, you can see the, 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 the same word why is used, but it's a, a little bit sharper contrast in, in the Greek. The Greek is actually a, a phrase, according to what? According to what? That's what the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus, and that's the exact same language. Jesus could have phrased this other ways, but he uses their exact question, and according to what do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus is answering them with a very typical rabbinical, this is kind of the ways the, the rabbis would dispute with one another. They would ask counter questions. And why? According to what do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Now, it's very important that when Jesus answers this way, very important for us to see that Jesus isn't engaging in whataboutism. Do you know what whataboutism? It's very common in our culture that when someone accuses me of something, rather than answering the charge against me, I say, well, what about what you have done? It doesn't actually absolve me of having committed the sin that you've accused me of. It doesn't actually deal with it in any way. I just distract you from my own sin by pointing toward yours. Well, what about what you have done? You see this happening all the time. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not distracting from any sin that he had because he had no sin. What Jesus is doing then 
is he is refusing to concede that the tradition that they are claiming is binding upon him and upon everyone else in their society is neutral. He refuses to concede that point. This is not neutral. This is not extra credit. This is not what the super spiritual actually do. That in fact, their tradition is harmful. Their tradition is not just something extra to do. Their tradition actually strikes at the heart of biblical godliness, of biblical holiness. Notice what Jesus says. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? Leon Morris, one commentator, says, he's not saying in spite of your traditions. He's saying because of your traditions. Your traditions break the commandments of God. And so Jesus goes on. He's made a counter charge to this counter question. And now he is going to offer the specifications. He's accused them of something. He's saying, I'm innocent of what you claim is a sin. I certainly didn't wash my hands, but I'm claiming that that's no sin. What I am instead saying, Jesus is saying, is that you have in fact sinned. Now he's going to back it up with specifications. Now what he says is is in verse 4, starts in verse 4, he says, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, we don't totally know what system Jesus is actually talking about. Clearly, there was something that Jesus understood that the Pharisees and scribes understood, but there's some debate about what exactly was this practice that Jesus was addressing here. It's likely, I think if you look at the debate, I think most likely that probably what is happening here is that the Pharisees had created this exemption, that if you owed something to your parents, but you wanted to give it to God because you could be trumpeted and celebrated. Jesus talks earlier in the Sermon on the Mount about don't um, declare a trumpet when you give to the poor. Let your giving be done in secret. Understand what we give to our parents is often in secret. Uh, Nobody, at least, I mean, it's not really accepted that you would trumpet just helping your parents. That's just an expectation. But on the other hand, if you give to some grand charitable cause, well, definitely that's something you can trumpet. And there's probably an exception here, maybe by aggressive fundraising Pharisees that said, well, if you give this to God, go ahead. That's something you can trumpet and that you don't really have to worry about your parents in that sake. Now, notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying that's the tradition that you have developed as you're trying to think about how all these laws fit together. Understand that what you have done is not a keeping of the law. It is actually a relaxation of the law. The law requires you to honor your father and your mother, but the way you interpret all of this, your tradition stands directly opposed to what the law requires. You have said, according to your tradition, you don't actually have to keep the law. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's going back to something we saw in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talked about the righteousness that is required of God's people, and after giving an exposition about various different commandments in the Ten Commandments, at the very end of this, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he puts it very simply. He says, you therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, why does he say that? Well, it's beginning, Jesus said, remember, in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20, he said, understand, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And then furthermore, Jesus says, therefore, this is in chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the same people who have confronted him here, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we need to stop and think about what Jesus is saying in that passage. And then what he goes on to do is just like what he's doing here, to point how the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees actually relax the requirement of the clear teaching of the law. What Jesus is saying is that legalism is not a desire to pile up laws. It's not saying, I've actually kept the law so well that I want to build some extra credit and then to see if you all can keep up with me. Legalism actually starts in a very fundamentally different place. Legalism starts with a recognition that I cannot keep the infinitely high requirements of the righteousness of God. I must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. None of us think that's even possible. But what legalism does is it tries to reframe the whole debate and says, well, if that's not possible, that's not reasonable, no one could possibly do this, then I need to redefine the teaching of the law so that it's a bar that's low enough for me to somehow step over. I'm a tall guy. Maybe I can step a little higher than you, and that's going to be the bar. And by the way, if I stumble a little bit, that's okay, because I'm going to interpret the law a little bit more and lower that just a little bit so that I can actually step over it. That's how legalism works. How does legalism function then? Well, legalism is constantly looking for loopholes. Legalism is trying to take some portion of the wording of the law and say, well, if it's worded like this, it doesn't actually require total perfection. It only requires this much. And Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 5 and again here to show if you are saying this through your tradition, your tradition is actually opposed to the infinitely highest heaven righteousness standards given to you in the law. Let's think about how this works. When we look at the law, we want to feel like we are doing the right thing, and we want to feel that by doing the right thing, we will be saved. I've done enough, right? Haven't I been a good enough person? Haven't I been righteous enough? Don't I measure up to the standard of the righteousness of God? This is so built into our hearts because of sin. And we're going to see where that comes from in a moment. But let's think about this anatomy of the tree so far. In the last section, we saw the fruit of this, counterfeit commandments, commandments that seem like they are biblical, godly, and yet are false. They're counterfeit, and they destabilize and devalue God's holiness that He actually requires. Well, if you think about what that fruit hangs on, it hangs on a series of branches, a series of branches, a twisted, winding set of a way of looking the law and trying to weave our way through it in a way that is constantly looking for loopholes to get out of the full brunt of the requirements of the law. Because that trunk of the tree, this is sort of the fundamental outlook that everything flows out of, all the branches flow out of. 
It's a relaxed righteousness. Whoever relaxes these commandments and teaches others to do the same, that's what Jesus calls legalism. It's a view that if I am to be saved, it will be by succeeding at accomplishing whatever bar, whatever standard I think there is of God's righteousness. Well, it can't be that up there, so I've got to put it where I can actually step over that bar. And that is a significant relaxation from what God actually requires. Relaxed righteousness leads to looking for loopholes, which leads ultimately to counterfeit commandments. But where does this come from? What's the heart issue? What is the base of this? What is the foundation of this? What is at the root of legalism? The root of legalism, as Jesus is going to say, is a hard heart. A hard heart. And the third section, as we look at the root of legalism in verses 7 through 9, Jesus says in verse 7, you hypocrites. By the way, this is the scientific name of the species of legalism, okay? Uh, there's one other thing I remember from Mrs. Martin's fourth grade class, and it's the scientific name of the Madagascar hissing cockroach, because we had one, and it's Gromphederina portentosa. I learned two science things. That fills out just a, a little bit of my uh, half sheet of paper that I can remember. The scientific name of a legalist is a hypocrite, okay? A hypocrite is someone who presents one face while inwardly their heart is somewhere totally different. It's a hard heart that is hardened to God himself. And so Jesus then gives a definition of this species by quoting Isaiah 29 verse 13. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In verse 8, we see that root of legalism. It's someone who honors God with their lips. Why? Because that person's heart is far from God. That person's heart is hardened to God. The heart is far from God. You see, true religion, and I'm using that in a, in a good sense, the word religion in a good sense, true religion, a true relationship with God, a right relationship with God, stems from a desire for God, from a desire that hungers and thirsts after God's own righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus had said. But false religion, on the other hand, and I'm using here religion in a negative sense, false religion stems from a desire not for God, but it comes from a heart that is far from God. It is rather a desire to use God for any other purpose than God, to use God in some very cynical cases for power, for wealth, in maybe less cynical cases for respect or reputation, in probably all cases because of our sin, out of self-righteousness and pride at the end of the day? You see, if God isn't the goal, if knowing and loving and delighting in God isn't the end of everything that we are doing, then we don't actually need to approach Him on His terms. If God is just someone up there and we don't really care that much about Him, or maybe we don't believe Him and we're just pretending to believe Him, well, then there's no reason to take His commandments and to take the holiness that He requires of us seriously. And if we don't have to take it seriously, then of course we're going to look for loopholes. I mean, I don't want to be seen as a sinner, so I might 
legalistically do this. Of course, I'm not going to do that, the full requirement of it. I might do this over here, but of course, I'm not actually going to give God my heart at the end of the day. We're constantly looking for loopholes, and out of that branches a thousand different directions, a system of our own making bearing fruit of codified commandments where we think, if I can do this and not that, then I can get all the benefits of fake external righteousness while giving nothing of my heart and my soul. And what does this lead to? The heart that is far from me, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, and says, in vain, verse 9, do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. This is the fruit. This is, if the root is a heart far from God, the eventual fruit is teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If God is the goal, then we will worship Him as He has told us to do. If God is not the goal, then we will create a system around our own loopholes and we will use these counterfeited elements to create an illusion of religion, an illusion of being a good person. And Jesus says this is vanity. It is nothingness. But what we see in this passage, if we go back to the beginning... The pattern of legalism is that even though much of it requires looking for loopholes, do you notice that when legalists try to present their system to the world, there are no loopholes from the commandments of men. When legalists try to present what they have created, this rotten tree bearing rotten fruit that needs to be cut down at the roots, there are no loopholes there. The noose of tyranny tightens to enslave others to the commandments that I have made, the commandments that you have made. This is what leads the Pharisees and scribes to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee to trap Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about this bondage in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15 this way. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, that's the groups here, hypocrites, that's again the scientific name for legalists, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The key question that this passage confronts us with is how do we escape this tyranny? How do we escape the bondage of the rottenness through and through, from root to fruit, from trunk to branch of legalism. The application for this passage is to recognize that Jesus has not laid different facets that we can pick up and lay down as we please. That all of this, again, is a tightly integrated, interconnected system where there is an organic, vital connection from one part to all the other parts and from all the other parts to the one part. Jesus talks about the fruit of legalism as the creation of counterfeit commandments and what follows from there, tyranny for others to follow those commandments. There are no loopholes there. The branches that branch out to try to look for loopholes in every aspect of our lives This is a constant activity of looking for loopholes. What is the minimum that I can do to get over the bar of righteousness, at least as far as other people see that I am keeping it? The trunk, the basic element of the outlook of this life is a relaxed view of God's righteousness, relaxed righteousness, 
far down from the infinitely high as heaven demands of the law. But the roots that go down to the ground is a hardened heart, a heart that is far from God. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 20, that we will recognize false teachers, false prophets, legalists by their fruits. But how do we cure legalism? What is the remedy for this tyranny? Well, you can't simply remove the fruit. What the gospel of Matthew shows us, both in the teaching of Jesus and in John the Baptist, is you must cut the whole tree down. Again, Matthew 7, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Where does that start? Well, again, it's not just hacking off a branch or two there. See, I've reformed myself. It starts with the roots. It has to attack the roots. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The key problem, the roots, where all this flows from, and this is not just those people over there, those Pharisees in that camp. This is me. This is you. Is that in our nature, because of sin, our heart starts out far from God. We're not seeking Him. We're blind. We're deaf. We're, we're hardened. We hate God. We don't want what He requires of us. Do you know what that would demand of me? I can't do that. Our hearts are far from God. The solution that is what the Bible holds out everywhere. It's to turn back to God. To repent from our sin, to repent from our legalism, to repent from the loopholes, to depend or to repent from everything that we are trying to do to make myself righteous, to get myself over that bar that I think is at least down here so that I can make that grade. It's to repent and turn from that and turn in faith to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great, tragic, despicable irony of this passage is that it was the tyranny of the tradition of elders that drew these Pharisees and scribes to Jesus. They traveled a long distance on foot to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. But they came to Jesus to condemn him. This morning, if you are under the bondage of tyranny and the tyranny of bondage to legalism, there is an opportunity for you to come to Jesus. In fact, you will come to Him one way or another, either to dismiss Him, to despise Him, to condemn Him, or to embrace Him as your only hope, your only comfort in this life and the next. Built into us, this is part of what it means to be created in the image of God, is that all of us want to be righteous. All of us want to make the grade, to live up to the standard that we need to meet. But we are born behind the eight ball. We are born transgressors, guilty of that infinitely high as heaven standard that God has laid down in the law. Why are we guilty? Because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And out of that spiritual blindness and darkness and deafness 
Each one of us begins to search in one way or another to try to find some standard that we can reach. Well, if I lower the law down to here, if I relax the righteousness of God down to here, I can get over that bar. I can create a system. I can make this to work. I can make the grade. And when necessary, I will adjust down that bar so that I can still cross it. This looks like freedom to us, but it's tyranny, it's slavery, it is bondage, it is a tactic of Satan's warfare against God's people to destroy and destabilize the holiness that God requires of us. But our Lord Jesus came into this world. The great news of the gospel is that he came to save sinners. He came to save those who had fallen far short of the glory of God. He came not just to show us how to work our way over that bar. Maybe if we use the right technique, sort of a, use a back technique to sort of high jump over that bar, maybe we can make the grade. Jesus didn't come to show us how to live and gain for ourselves a righteousness according to the law. Jesus came to accomplish, to achieve, to prepare a righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a righteousness that He Himself earned, not that you have to earn, that He Himself earned, a righteousness that He gives us fully, completely, by grace and through faith. In Romans 3, verse 28, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works play no role in your being counted righteous before God. No role from beginning to end in counting you righteous before God. Your righteousness, if you are to be counted righteous, will come only through your faith in Christ, which hides your life in His, which covers you in what Christ has done for you. So that after we have been justified, counted righteous, not by what we have done, but through Jesus' righteousness, which we receive by faith alone, then, then Jesus starts the rehabilitation process. After chopping down the one tree, he plants a new tree, a tree whose roots flow down into the gospel of his grace that draw up the nutrients of what he has done through his blood and righteousness. Jesus, through his principle of life, sanctifies us, making us truly holy, not merely outwardly, but that works from the inside out. We'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing. According not just to a, a caricature, a farce of the law, not counterfeit commandments, but God's holy, righteous law, not the counterfeit commandments of men. To those this morning who are crushed under the infinitely high as heaven standard of the righteousness of God, be perfect. You must be perfect because our Father in heaven is perfect. To those of you crushed by that infinitely high standard, Jesus stands ready to save. Turn to Christ this morning. And to those who are burdened under the legalistic tyranny of all of this false loophole-seeking all of this false religiosity, turn to Christ. All of the counterfeit commandments of men that put such a snare, a millstone around our neck, turn to Jesus Christ and be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ, 
the great freedom that he offers to his people, that you would give us that through faith in him. We pray, Father, not for a tradition of our own making, but what you have given us in your word, that our tradition might not undercut what you have done, but that whatever we have received from the beginning from your word would build us up in faith in Christ and in the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.